Second Samuel chapter number 5, I want to read to you this morning about a pivotal moment in the Old Testament, and there's not much said about it, and I, I think often uh, we, when we read this passage, skip over it without realizing how momentous uh, this occasion was. And in Second Samuel chapter number 5, I want to read to you about when David took Jerusalem. Uh, you know, when you even just say that, that sounds really important, doesn't it? Amen? It is. Amen? So uh, when we say it, you say, well, preacher, I don't guess I've ever noticed when he took Jerusalem. And uh, probably you haven't, but I want you to see it this morning. I want to point to the Savior through this passage, and I want to show you some things about Christ. Second Samuel chapter number 5, the Bible says in verse number 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. David built round about from Milo and inward. David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the word of God that we have a Bible. And Lord, I'm thankful that this morning as we gather around your word, we can learn from it. We can draw from it some truths about who you are, what you've done for us, and what you desire for our lives. I pray, Lord, that this morning that the Holy Spirit of God would have perfect liberty in this service let there not be a bitter spirit. Let there not be a, a uh, an attitude of unbelief or of cynicism. But may we, as we approach to your word, just lay our hearts open and bare before you and allow you to work in us that which would bring you the most glory. Help us to be honest. Lord, you can't help us if we're not honest. And may you receive glory as your word is preached. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, this is probably one of the most pivotal moments in all of the Old Testament, yea, we might even say in all of human history. If you're a student of the Bible, you know how important Jerusalem was to Old Testament worship and even today how high esteem that God holds Jerusalem in as a place, as a location. It was in Jerusalem that He chose to put His name there. It's in Jerusalem from which He'll reign for a thousand years. And David, of course, in the Old Testament is probably the most famous, the most significant king in all of Israel's history. And so isn't it a wonder that uh, we have never really taken notice, or I haven't at least, you're more spiritual than me, you probably have, but I had never really taken notice of the moment when David conquers Jerusalem. I suppose part of the reason for that is Jerusalem, then as it is now, was a place of much controversy. You'll find time and again in the Old Testament uh, that Jerusalem is fought over. Jerusalem is contested for. But Jerusalem, like the entirety of that portion of the world, uh, was under Canaanite rule and governance all the way up until this moment in Israel's history. 
David, when he assumes the throne and when he's getting ready to go and establish himself in Jerusalem, he gathers his men together and they decide that if he's going to reign from Jerusalem, he's got to have all of Jerusalem. And so they gather together and go up to the stronghold of Zion. In other words, it was a fortress or a fort. It was an impregnable area and they go up to it and they conquer this place and it then becomes the city of David the seat of God, it becomes the capital of God's work in this world throughout the Old Testament. In other words, David goes up and this place goes from a stronghold to a sanctuary. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage of Scripture, man, there's a lot of things in it that remind me of Jesus Christ. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, for instance, David reminds me of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't go too deep into uh, numerology, mainly because I'm bad with math. Somebody say amen to that. I'll have my dividends mixed up with my integers and everything else. But I can notice numbers when they're in my Bible. And I notice some things about the description in verses 4 and 5 of David's reign. I want you to notice the inauguration of his reign. The Bible says in verse number 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Boy, that reminds me of Jesus Christ. Because he was 30 years old when he entered into public ministry. Now, he had always been God, and he had always been God's son, and he had always been God's Messiah. But for the first 30 years of his life, he was not in public ministry. It was not until he uh, was baptized in the River Jordan, and the Spirit of God descended in the likeness of a dove, that his ministry began. I've heard people say, well, you know, when he was a little boy, he probably went around and uh, healed little broken bird wings. And uh, number one, that tells me you don't know nothing about little boys. Amen. They don't go around fixing bird wings. They go around breaking bird wings. But it tells me, number two, that you've not read your Bible because the Bible tells us in John chapter 2, this beginning of miracles did Jesus at a wedding in Cana. He didn't perform a single miracle. He didn't enter public ministry. He lived the obscure life of a carpenter until he was 30 years old. And then at 30 years old, he began to minister. Not only the inauguration of David's reign reminds me of Christ, but the location of his reign. The Bible says in verse 5, in Hebron, he reigned over Judah. The Bible goes on to say in verse 5, in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and 3 years over all Israel. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, the location where David reigned is the very location where Christ ministered. Now, we understand that he was from Galilee, but we understand that by birth and by lineage, he was of Bethlehem. Uh, we understand he was of the tribe of Judah. In fact, the Bible calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. And though our Lord spent much of his public ministry in the northern portion of Israel, the closer he got to the cross, the closer he got to Jerusalem. And let me say, not just the location of his ministry then, but the location of his throne in the future will be Jerusalem itself. The Bible describes how that he will set up a throne, a literal throne in literal Jerusalem and literally reign for a literal thousand years. You say, preacher, you take that literal? Literally, I do. Literally, I do. The location of his reign reminds me of Jesus, but then the duration of his reign, because the Bible says this in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. You see, the beginning of when he began to reign reminds me of when our Lord began his public ministry. But the duration of his reign also reminds me of when our Lord ended his public ministry. 
Because our Lord was 33 years old when He marched up Calvary's hill and died on a rugged cross for you and for me. I'm glad the story don't end there, by the way. You already know this. I trust you do. If you don't, let me inform you that uh, Christ's life did not end at Calvary. He gave His life at Calvary. But then three days later, He got up from an empty tomb and is now alive and risen and doing well. Amen. So David reminds me of Jesus Christ. But then what does Jerusalem remind us of? Well, I want you to notice what Jerusalem was to the Jew in the Old Testament. Jerusalem was a deeply significant place in Old Testament worship. For one thing, Jerusalem was the place of God's Word. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? There were prophets all over Israel, and that's very true. And there were even Levites that went out and they taught all over the country of Israel, and that's true. But I'd remind you that in Jerusalem, in the temple, was where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It contained several items. And one of the things that it contained was the tables of the law that Moses had written down after the first had been destroyed and he had carried down off the mountain had been kept in safe storage in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where they often kept copies, entire copies of Old Testament Scripture. That was the place where the priest would minister. That was the place, and we see it often in the uh, Lord's earthly ministry, that he would go not just to synagogues and teach, but likewise he would go into the temple itself and he would teach there as well. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying the Word of God was all over Israel, but if we were to pick one place and say that's the place of the book, it would be Jerusalem. So it was the place of God's Word. Not only that, Jerusalem was the place of God's worship. It was the place where people came to meet with God. Now, God has never been confined to a location. He's an omnipresent God. And I'm thankful we don't have to go to a physical location to worship God. And they didn't necessarily have to go to a physical location to pray to the Lord or to have fellowship with God. But it was so that in the Old Testament, public worship or formal worship was confined when the temple was built to Jerusalem. That was the place that God said whenever Solomon consecrated the temple, he said, I'll put my name there. I'll meet with you there. You'll pray to me there. You'll sacrifice to me there. You'll hold feast days to me there. Over and over again in the Bible, we read of uh, Israelites making a pilgrimage, a journey back to Jerusalem when the feast days happened because that was the place where God was worshipped. That's where He had put His name. That's where He desired to be worshipped. Let me just pause for a second and say this. It ought to matter a lot more to us how God wants to be worshipped than how we want to worship Him. God has standards of worship. God has standards of what worship looks like and what He desires out of worship. Did you ever get a, a and this, by the way, this is a terrible time to give this illustration. I, I didn't, I didn't get a single present I didn't love. Amen. Uh, for my birthday. People was very good, very gentle. I just ticked over my birthday. I'm, I'm 26 years old still. Amen. I'm just hanging on to that. No, I'm 36 years old now, and, and every gift that I got was wonderful. I loved it, and it, it was precious and thoughtful. But have you ever had a time in your life that you got a gift that you knew was more about the person giving it than it was the person receiving it? You ever had that happen? You ever had it happen in your life where somebody gave you a gift and you could tell that them giving the gift was more about them getting the gratification out of giving it than them actually getting you something that you want? Amen? If that was not true, nobody gets socks for Christmas. Amen? I got, listen, hey, I need socks. Somebody say amen. I ain't too good to get socks. And uh, I'm refraining from telling about the Christmas year. I got a trash can 
for uh, Christmas. Amen. We're just not going to go into that. God's given us victory over that. We're not even worried about it anymore. But, you know, that's sort of how we treat God. We worship Him the way we want to worship Him, not the way that He wants to be worshipped. How backwards is that manner of thinking? Here's what worship should look like. We ought to sit there and say, what do you want out of me, God? And that's what I want to deliver unto you. Jerusalem was the place of God's Word. It was the place of God's worship. But then also Jerusalem was the place of God's work. What do you mean, preacher? Well, there was a lot of work involved in that form of worship. And when you look at the vocation and responsibilities of the priests in the Old Testament, they were not pontiffs that sat upon a gold-plated throne and ushered edicts and commands. I mean, that's a distinctly pagan concept of what a priest is. You know what these Old Testament priests largely were? They were workers. And they would, in the Old Testament, they spent a great deal of their time animals, which is no easy task. And then they spent time tending to the maintenance of the temple and preparing things. It was the place where people that wanted to serve God went to serve God. I'm glad we can serve God outside of the house of God. But I will tell you this, the house of God is a place we ought to serve God. We ought to view it as us coming here to serve the Lord and to please Him and to honor Him in all that we do. And you say, well, preacher, that's interesting. What does that have to do with me in my life? Well, can I remind you that everything that God did and was doing in Jerusalem as a physical location in the Old Testament, He has not stopped doing those things. Now, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you would not find a temple there. You'd find a mosque there. If you were to go there, you would not find true worship. You'd find false worship, both of the Muslim and of the Jewish variety. If you went there today, you wouldn't find that God is is there in the sense that He was in the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory of God is not descending upon uh, that hill. God is not working and moving in that place. And yet God is still working. But He's not working in Jerusalem. Rather, He's working in a different Jerusalem. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen to how Paul describes the state of the believer in the New Testament and the place that we occupy. Hebrews chapter number 12, this is what he says in verse 22. He says, but ye, and he's talking to saved people in this dispensation of grace. He says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now, he's been telling an illustration how that we, in coming to God in His grace, we are not coming to Mount Sinai to the law, but rather we're coming to Mount Zion to grace. And he says, ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying everything God was doing in the Old Testament, He's doing it in the New Testament. But what He did in a physical location in the Old Testament, He's doing in a spiritual reality in the New Testament. I'm certainly not suggesting God's done with Israel. I can't believe that when I read my Bible. He's not done with Israel. He's not done with Jerusalem, and I'm not suggesting that. But I am likewise saying He's not done at all. He is still working, He is still moving, but He is doing so in this dispensation, in the body of the church, and in the life of believers that are saved by the grace of God. We've come to a heavenly Jerusalem. And you know, all those things we said 
apply to us as saved individuals and apply to the church in this age of grace. For instance, the church is the place of God's Word. Now, just like in the Old Testament, the Word of God existed outside of the temple. Well, hey, listen, I hope you take your Bible with you everywhere you go. And certainly the church, though it is the steward of divine truth, it is not kept under lock key like the Roman Catholics seek to do with the Bible. We ought to share and spread the Word of God. Hey, the Word of God, it's seed that is to be sown. But it is likewise true that if you want to hear the Bible preached, the best place to go is a local New Testament church. That's the place where the Word of God is exalted, and it should be exalted. We should exalt the Bible. Hey, He's magnified His Word above His name. I'd rather have a church that was about the Bible than I would that was just about repeating His name mindlessly. Uh, Listen, I I believe that the church is the place of God's Word. Not only that, the, the church is the place of God's worship. Not the lake, not the golf course. The church is the place of God's worship. Now, somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, you mean we can't worship God at the golf course? Not the ones I've been to, amen? You're telling me I can't worship Him at the lake? I hope you do. But none of that displaces the local church. I hope you do worship Him at the golf course if you go. I hope you worship Him at the lake if you go. I hope you worship Him wherever it is that you go. But that is not the only place of worship, nor is it the primary place of worship. You see, the reality, mm, I've got a message, I'm going to preach it. Reality is, we don't esteem the things God esteems. Hey, listen, the Lord loves the church and gave Himself for it. If you didn't need church, why did He give Himself so that you could have church? If you don't need church... Why would He die on the cross so that He might sanctify the church and cleanse it and present it to Himself a glorious church if you don't need church? Hey, we need church. Listen, this salvation we enjoy, this place, the church, it's the place of God's Word. It's the place of God's worship, but it's also the place of God's work. Everything God's doing in this world, He's doing through the local church. That is the avenue of God's ministry in this world. It's not globalist, multi-conglomerate, universal ministries. That's not the avenue that God's chosen to work in this world. I'm not saying that those organizations can't occasionally do a good thing. Uh, I mean, listen, even occasionally the federal government messes up and does a good thing every now and then. But that's not the chosen avenue and the chosen conduit through which God works in this world. I would remind you the word church is found a little over a hundred times in the New Testament. Over 90 of those times it references local church. Now you say, well, preacher, what do you do with that? Well, I love, listen, I love my Bible. I love, I love the Lord because He gave me enough instances where it is a spiritual use of the word church that I can't be a brighter. But He gave me plenty enough uses of it being the local church that I won't be a universal churchist either. Where does that leave me? Well, it leaves me a Bible believer. It leaves me having to say that, of course, every believer is knit together in the fellowship of the gospel. And, of course, God is not confined or bound by geographical boundaries. And, of course, God has a good head count of who's His and who ain't. But it also tells me we ought to put the emphasis where God does, which is on the local church. That's where God is working and where God is moving and where God chooses to place His work. So in other words, when I read this passage about David taking the stronghold of, uh, of, of Jerusalem and making it the city of Zion, it reminds me of Christ dying on the cross of Calvary, purchasing salvation and the church and ushering in this dispensation of grace that we live in. 
When I see Jerusalem, I don't think of the physical Jerusalem, although that's certainly an application, but it makes me think of heavenly Jerusalem and the standing that you and I have as children of God in this day of grace. So when I read this passage of Scripture with that in mind, I want you to notice three thoughts, and then I'll be done this morning. Notice with me, number one, the stronghold of Zion. The Bible says in verse number six, the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, Zion, the same is the city of David. In other words, David shows up and he wants to take the city, but he cannot take the city because there's a fortress in the way. It's going to take the help of God, the work of God, the plan of God, the move of God for them to be able to take this city. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, Bible Christianity is not just the renovation of a man's character or the uh, readjustment of a man's attitude. It is the regeneration of a man's soul. It's going to take God changing a person by His supernatural grace for them to be saved. Here in this passage, we see that it took God doing a great work. Why is it? What did David meet? Well, when he came, here's what he met. He came to a people unconquered. The Bible says in verse 6, that his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites are an ancient Canaanite people, and they have dwelt for time immemorial in this place called Jerusalem. It's interesting because when you study in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they conquered all around Jerusalem. They even conquered portions of what we think of today as Jerusalem. But that hill, that stronghold, that fortress was always beyond their ability to conquer until this day. It is peopled by a wild, ungovernable people. It is occupied by a, by a hostile uh, force of, of, of people with animosity and hatred in their heart for the people dwelling around them. You know, that sort of reminds me of what this world was like when Christ came into it. He came to a people unconquered. You would think that the Old Testament law would have made people lawful. But in fact, the law has no ability uh, to justify or to sanctify the flesh. So instead, when he comes to Israel, when he came unto his own, uh, the Bible says his own received him not. When he came to Israel the first time, the very first time uh, that he and his physical body uh, would have entered into Jerusalem, would have been when he was brought by Mary and Joseph, uh, eight days old, uh, to the temple to be circumcised circumcised and to be consecrated to the Lord. And when he got there, he met a hostile environment. He came to a people unconquered. I'll tell you, the biggest problem in this world is not poverty. The biggest problem in this world is not violence. The biggest problem in this world is not division or bigotry. The biggest problem in this world is people. Because it's from people that all the rest comes from. The fact of the matter is, until we can do something about people, we're not going to see any progress. That's why I love the gospel. It deals with people. And you say, preacher, my life's so messed up. Could God do something about that? I'm a messed up person. Well, he came for messed up people. Ungovernable people, lawless people, people that can't be conquered and can't be overcome. It reminds you of the maniac of Gadara who they'd try to put chains on him to confine him, but they couldn't. He'd just snap the, the, the chains like, like burnt thread. But whenever Jesus shows up, he comes and slides into home plate at the feet of Jesus and begins to humble himself before him. 
And Jesus took chains off of him that they couldn't even see were on him and changed his life. He came to a people unconquerable. Not only did he come to a people unconquered, look at the next phrase. The Bible says this is what they said. They spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Now, when you read that, that might puzzle you for a moment. But here's what's taking place. They are so confident in their fortification that they take all of the infirmed of their city. And instead of putting them safely behind the walls in the deepest, darkest caverns to protect them from the enemy getting ready to breach their gates, as a show of of force, as a show of pride, they take all of the blind and lame and they put them up on the city walls. And then they look down at David and say, David, if you want to come in here, you're going to have to kill all these blind and lame people to get in here. What they were saying is, we are so safe that we even can use the blind and the lame to defend us from your assault. In other words, it was not confidence by any stretch in the blind and the lame, but in their walls that they believed impregnable that caused them to put the broken amongst them forward as a mockery against David. It's the reason here in a moment when David tells them to go in, the Bible describes him as as hating the blind and the lame. David was not a cruel man. He didn't hate them for their blindness. He didn't hate them for their lameness. But they put these men on the wall and had them mock David and scoff David, not just by their presence, but by their very words, and to cast shame upon him in saying that there was no way that he could take the city. Preacher, what are you getting at? Well, he came not just to a people unconquered. He came to a problem unconquered. David's standing there at the foot of these walls. He has no means or way, at least seemingly so, to cross over them. And they are so confident that their walls cannot be breached that the very most broken amongst them are put on display to vaunt against Him and to mock Him. You know, when Christ came into this world, He met not just a people unconquered, there was a problem that had to be dealt with. That was our sin problem. Our sin problem had to be dealt with. Our sin was a large, vast, thick wall that kept us away from God. And God desired to have fellowship with mankind, but could not because of man's sin, because of man's unrighteousness. Generations of Old Testament prophets had cried against the sin of Israel, but it had not made Israel any holier. Generations of priests had offered sacrifice after sacrifice, but none of them made the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they have ceased to have been offered. Untold billions of gallons of animal blood had rolled off this hill, and nary a one could sanctify the soul. But then, when, hey, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent forth His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. What the prophets couldn't do, what the priests couldn't do, what the sacrifices couldn't do, what their culture couldn't do, hey, God did through the person of Jesus Christ. I think about the fortress that met him and how that David had to figure out a way to conquer, to breach a wall that had never been breached. And so likewise, Christ, when he died on the cross of Calvary, he breached a wall that had never been breached before. And he made a way for our salvation. I think about the fortress that met him, but then I think about the feeble that mocked him. Not only is there a wall that he can't get past, 
But the very people that normally they would be rescuing, there's a reason here in a moment that David says the blind and the lame cannot go into the house because normally under battle circumstances, when they breached the wall, they wouldn't have slain those that were infirmed and feeble and lame. They would have spared them out of mercy. David chooses not to do that because they are standing on the wall mocking him. Their brokenness, their infirmity, their feebleness, rather than being concealed and dealt with in pity, is put on display and dealt with in pride. Well, what a picture of this world, man. You understand that their blindness is a picture of spiritual blindness. And every person born into this world is born spiritually blind. We're born in darkness. That man in John chapter number 9 that Christ heals of his blindness, he's blind from his birth, is a picture of the lost sinner. We're born blind. We don't even know that we're blind. We don't even know. A man born blind would have never known that there was anything other than blindness. And so a lost person born in their sins, they don't even know there's anything better than what they have. Spiritually blind and they're spiritually lame. Not only can they not see, but they cannot stand. They lack the ability, even if they wanted to move, to be able to move. What a picture that is of the lost man who, even though he may desire a better life, even though he may sense some brokenness within him, lacks the ability, the strength, the capacity, and the knowledge to be able to walk differently than how he's walking. See, in many ways, they picture the lost sinner with his sins separating him from God. And rather than uh, being treated with pity, rather than being ashamed, rather than being concealed, they're placed on the wall and their infirmity is used as the very vehicle with which to mock him. You are so weak, David, that you can't even deal with our lame and our blind. It's interesting when you study the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, how often he came into contact with people that were physically infirmed on a daily basis. Other than the seasons when he was fasting out in the wilderness praying, day by day he was met by broken people. And there was never a single broken person whom he could not make whole if they were willing to allow him to. You see, in many ways it reminds me of of Jesus because David, he comes to a people unconquered, to a problem unconquered. Not only that, he comes to a place unconquered. Verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. You can imagine for a moment, if you will, that at this stage, you understand how late we are in Israel's history here. They've already had King Saul. He is now gone. David is the king. They've been in the land of Canaan for hundreds of years. Public worship of the true God is fully instituted, though it's not located in Jerusalem yet, because the the tabernacle is still in effect, and they were going at some times to Gibeon, at other times to Shiloh, to go and worship God wherever the tabernacle may have been. But I'm saying this, when you walked into the land of Israel, you weren't walking into a pagan environment. I mean, there was the acknowledgement of the true God everywhere around them except for this one place. There in the very heart of Jerusalem, God was not recognized. There in the very heart of Jerusalem, God was not known. And what, listen, oh, listen to how good a God we've got. Instead of saying, well, that's all right, we've got most of them. He goes to those that still don't know Him, to the very place, to the very heart, to the very location where He's not known. David could have said, we've got them surrounded, don't worry about it. David said, no, I want Jerusalem and I want all of it. In other words, David goes to a place nobody else would go to. He goes to a people nobody else would go to. He goes to the trouble that nobody else would go to to try to to rescue this place and to bring it to a true knowledge of God. Boy, what a picture that is of Christ. 
that leaves the 90 and 9 and goes out to get the one sheep that's gone astray. It's been said untold millions of times, but let me just add my voice to the chorus this morning. If you were the only one, he would have still went to Calvary. So the stronghold in this passage of Zion reminds me of what Jesus did on the cross. But then the solution of David reminds me of Jesus. Now, I need to do a little explaining here, but let's read our text in verse 8. David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I like David's solution here. Kill them all. That's David's solution. It's simple and clean. I like that plan. Amen. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up and we're not going to leave a one of them breathing. We're going to kill every single one of them. And the person that goes up through the gutter and reaches them first and slays them, they will win to themselves great esteem and great acclaim and great position on this day. Now, can I just say, this reminds me of Jesus and what he did on Calvary, but not in the way you might think. Did you know in the Bible there's such a thing as theologians call it a type? A type is an Old Testament picture or shadow of a New Testament place, people, or event. And your Bible's full of types. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, Adam is a type of Christ. Eve is a type of the church. You remember that Adam, he uh, knew that the fruit would, would, would condemn them, but he ate willingly. Eve was deceived, but when Eve ate of the fruit, she was separated from Adam. And Adam, loving his wife dearly enough, wanted to have fellowship with her, also knowing that the seed was the only way that they might be restored as humanity. He willingly ate of the fruit, partook in the fruit, that he might remain with his bride and redeem his bride. And what a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. Hey, we as lost sinners, we have willingly partaken in sin. And we have, of course, been deceived by sin's siren song. But we are hopelessly, irreparably condemned and, 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 and wretched. But here's what Jesus Christ, the second Adam, did. He willingly partook in the fruit, became sin for us, that He might redeem us unto Himself. On and on you could go in the Old Testament type after type. Most of them point towards Jesus Christ. You could read about Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah and what a picture that is of Jesus Christ giving himself a sacrifice for us. You could look at other types in the Old Testament. You could look at the uh, the uh, purchasing of, of Rebekah uh, unto uh, Isaac and how the Eliezer is a picture of the Holy Spirit in calling and wooing and winning sinners to Jesus Christ. But there's types all throughout your Bible. But you know, not all types are just a straight one-to-one conversion. This is a picture. This is the answer. There are types in the Bible. They are not types of comparison, but they are types of contrast. In other words, it's not saying, see this picture in the Old Testament? This truth is exactly the same. But rather, it's God saying, see this picture in the Old Testament? This truth is exactly the opposite. Let me give you an example of that. You remember in Romans chapter number 5 that Paul is talking about Adam as the federal head of humanity. You know, when Adam ate of the fruit, we all ate of the fruit. When he sinned, we all fell. When he fell, we all fell with him. 
And then Paul begins to talk about how that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Listen to how he describes that in Romans chapter number 5, verse 14. He says this, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. There we have that typology. But he says this, Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. In other words, he's saying Adam ate of the fruit and everybody died. Jesus ate of the fruit and made a way for everybody to receive life if they so choose. He says, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Adam ate of the fruit once, and it birthed sin throughout the human family. Jesus, he ate of the fruit once, and it covered the sins of the human family. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, I I read all that to establish a truth. I want you to see it in the Bible. This isn't something the preacher's making up. There are types that are direct comparisons. Then there are types that are direct contrasts. Here's the reason I told you that. I see a type of Jesus Christ in David's response. But it is not a type of comparison. In fact, it is a type of contrast. Everything David did, Jesus did the opposite. Notice it with me. What does the Bible say in verse 8? David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Let me just read these to you. Hey, David went up to the gutter. Joab went up to the gutter. But the Bible tells me that Jesus went down to the gutter. Now, what does it mean when it says go up to the gutter? Well, likely it's talking about their aqueduct or their conduit. And he's saying there's no way in this water. But I've found a way somebody can go down into the lowest of lows, into that filthy, dirty water. They can crawl through it, get to the other side, and be able to slay the enemy. Boy, what a picture of what Jesus did when He robed Himself in flesh, became sin on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. He didn't go up to the gutter. He went down to the gutter. Not only that, the Bible tells me this. David hated those men. Now, he hated the lame and the blind because they were, were unrepentant mockers of him. They were standing on the wall and casting scorn into his teeth. They were standing over the wall and, and, and spraying down insults upon him and saying, you can't come up here. You can't defeat us. You can't destroy us. So here's what David did. He took in all that they said. He took in all that they did. And it bore in him a burning, searing, hot hatred and passion. He loathed those men on the wall. But here's what Jesus did. He didn't loathe them. He loved them. He didn't hate us. He helped us. He didn't despise us. Hey, He delivered us. It would have been appropriate whenever, as He was marched up Calvary's hill, they cast scorn in His teeth. They plucked out His beard. They spit upon Him. I don't know about you, man. I would have been mad if I had had the power of God. I would have spoken, slayed every single one of them. But that's not what Jesus did. Hey, when the chorus of your sins added to the scorn of the mockers at the cross of Calvary, He did not despise you. He did not scorn you. He did not hate you. He instead held his lip. He was led as a lamb before the slaughters is done. So he opened not his mouth. He said, preacher, what you getting at? He didn't loathe you when you were broken. He loved you when you were broken. 
Not only did he not loathe them, he loved them. But he didn't smite them, he saved them. David said, I'll tell you what we'll do about those lime and blame, those blind and lame. We'll kill every one of them. And he had every right to do that. It was only appropriate that he do that. These were not poor pitiful people that were pushed forward as a human shield against him. They were complicit cooperators, godless individuals casting mockery at him. And he said, I know what we'll do. We can't fix them. We can't help them. We can never win them to our side. Let's just slay every one of them. But you know, Jesus, he didn't slay us and he didn't smite us. He chose to save us. He died on the cross of Calvary that us unrepentant God mockers could be saved by his grace. The Bible tells us who the man is that breaches the gutter and goes up and saves the day. He's a man that you'll go on if you study your Bible to hear much of. He was a man by the name of Joab. First Chronicles tells us that. Here our text doesn't, but First Chronicles tells us that Joab took up the offer of David. And he goes through the gutter and goes in and slays every one of them. Now, Joab is a complicated man in the Bible. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they used this phrase. They were talking about a physical illness they had, and they said, the doctors call what I have a complicated illness. I said, that's funny. I've always thought of my personality that way. Amen? Complicated illness. And uh, Joab's a complicated man in the Bible. Uh, he winds up bringing great shame. But in this passage, he's the victor. He's the hero. You know what his name Joab means? I love this. It means fathered by Jehovah. What a picture even in this passage that Joab is. The man that took the city that no one could take. The man that crawled in the gutter that no one would crawl in. The man that went and won the day that no one could win. Joab, he goes and he uh, breaches the city. But you know, Joab, when he went into the city and when he smited those uh, lame and blind, he became a chief and a captain. He won great honor to himself on this day. And the name Joab became known wild and wide all over the world. And everybody would have said, boy, what a wonderful person Joab is. They would have praised him. They would have exalted him. He became captain that day. But when Christ did this, he became the condemned. Joab did it to win great acclaim to himself. Jesus did it to win us to himself. I understand he's the captain of our salvation. I understand wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. I understand all that, but you understand when he went to the cross of Calvary, it was not to be met by the praise of men, but it was to be met by the scorn of men. He became not captain, he became condemned. And then I like what it says at the end. The Bible says this, David said, Wherefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David looked around and said, whoever gets up there and opens the gates of the city, defeats the Jebusites, kills the blind and the lame, they'll be captain and chief. And those soldiers looked at each other and said, those are our marching orders. The blind and the lame are not to go into the house. Why would they say that? Because it would have been typical when they began to breach the city for the most infirmed and feeble among them to retreat into safer quarters. But they said, no, they're not allowed in the house We're going to slay them first. In other words, they banned them from the house. But I like this. Christ, He didn't bar us from the house. He brought us into the house. He didn't He didn't put us in danger's way. He brought us to safe haven and to refuge. I think the solution of David reminds me of Jesus Christ. But then the city of Jerusalem reminds me of what Jesus did. The battle is ended. The Bible says in verse 9, So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. David built round about from Millo and inward. David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts 
was with him. Rest your Bible. In fact, Jerusalem is the place named more than any other location, geographic location in your entire Bible. Hundreds of times the city of Jerusalem is named. But here in this short little excerpt, we find what God did with the city once he had the city. You ever you ever gotten something in your life and then realized you didn't know what to do with it? <laughs> uh, listen, like the dog that finally catches the car. What am I going to do? I'm glad God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan for the church. And he's got a plan for you and me. Notice what he did here. Notice, number one, the establishing of the city. I like what he named it. David dwelt in the fort. And what did he call it? He didn't call it the city of Joab. He called it the city of David. From then on, everybody that entered the city entered by the name of David. Everybody that entered into the city had to say the name of David. Everybody that entered into the city had to know or would shortly know who David was. In fact, this city didn't become about Jerusalem writ large. It didn't become about the Jebusites. It didn't become about Joab. It became about one man. It became about David. Well, what a picture that is, the New Testament church. Can I tell you something? Hey, the church ain't about me. The church ain't about you. The church ain't about the church, quote, unquote. There's a lot of people, that's their concept, is is the church is about the church. That's this consumer-driven attitude and perspective about Christianity, that the church is about the church. Can I tell you, the church ain't about the church any more than the church is about the preacher. The church is about Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be a part of the body of Christ, meaning if you're going to be born again and be saved by God's grace, you're going to have to come by the name, not of David, but of the son of David, of Jesus Christ. Because there's none other name given among men whereby you must be saved than at the name of Jesus. I see the establishing of the city, but then I see the enlarging of the city. The Bible says, And David built round about from Milo or Milo and inward. I can't say Milo. I get thirsty. I want some sweet tea. Amen. But from Milo and inward. Now, Milo, and there's probably a little debate and dispute amongst the, the commentators about what Milo was, but most of them are in pretty common agreement that Milo was actually the region or area around the city where bulwarks and defenses, including a deep moat, were built to try to prevent invaders from getting into the city. And here's what David does. He gets in, and he don't just want it to be a stronghold. He wants it to be a sanctuary. He don't just want it to be a fort that they entrench themselves into and keep people out of. He wants it to be a city that they can go out and bring people into. So here's what he does. He fills in that moat and he begins from Milho to build a city, to enlarge it. He don't want it just to be a stronghold. He wants it to be a city and a sanctuary. It's not meant to just be a little club where a group of people get in with their cultural preferences, uh, with their personality preferences, but he wants it to be a place that anybody that's willing to bow before the king, that anybody that's willing to submit themselves to the king's authority can come in and find a home and find a place. Man, what a picture that is of New Testament grace and of the church of the living God. Hey, listen, not just a little social club where we've got me, my four and no more. I've got my little group and that's all I'm interested in. But a place where we have a desire to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they might be brought in. You say, but preacher, they're out of the city. Well, so was you till you got into the city. <laughs> but preacher, they don't belong here. Neither do you. Neither do I. But here we are by the grace of God. See the establishing of the city and the enlarging of the city, but then I see the excellence of the city. I like what it says, and David went on. Can I just pause and say this? Jesus is still going on. He's still going on. He ain't just going on. He's going strong. 
He's still alive today. The story did not end with the taking of the city. David, he went on. What did he go on to do? He went on to grow great. The Bible says the Lord God of hosts was with him. In other words, God blessed what David had done. God met with David. God dwelt with David. We understand even more so today that God would establish His name there, that Jerusalem would have a special place in the heart of God from then even today and even all throughout eternity. Jerusalem is going to be the centerpiece of God's overall dispensational plan until one day He sets a new Jerusalem on top of the old Jerusalem. And then the new Jerusalem is going to be God's seat. (laughs) So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, that it became a place where God dwelt And it became a place where God was working. And your life and mine, what a tragedy it would be if our story ended merely with the taking of the stronghold. What a tragedy it would be if our life, if if the only thing that God ever, uh, that, that we ever got from God was a testimony. The only thing that God ever did in our life was save us and no more. What a tragedy that would be. There, listen, there's untold numbers of Christians today that they are saved just. And they are saved by God's grace. I mean, they're, they're as saved as I am. They're going to go to the same heaven I'm going to go to. I, I might not let them sit in my corner, but they're going to go to the same heaven I'm going to go to. <laughs> they're just as saved as you or I are, but they're saved just. Just. I'm glad God's plan for you and I, it doesn't end at the point of salvation. It begins at the point of salvation. David didn't walk in, throw down the, the banners and, and, and tear down the gates and then walk off. He said, no, now the work begins, and now the city is built. The work of God didn't end when you got saved. It began in your life when you got saved. I hope you're continuing to go on for the Lord. Let's bow together this morning. Uh, as a musician comes to play, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the word as it's been preached today. God may have stirred your heart about something, and I've got a couple ideas of what he may have stirred it about. I'm not a prophet, don't claim to be, but just in light of what was preached, I want to ask you two questions. You're here today and you'd say, Preacher, if I'm be honest with you, I've never been saved. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't hate God. I'm not mad at Him. But if I was to be honest, if I died, I, I don't know that I'd go to heaven or I have no reason to think I'd go to heaven. I don't want to die in that condition. I don't want to live in that condition. Preacher, I believe I'm lost or I'm not sure if I'm saved. Would you pray for me? I want you to slip your hand up. Nobody's looking around but me and I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or make you stand or anything. I just want to pray for you. Brother Toby, I believe I'm lost or I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you pray for me? Slip your hand up. Let me pray for you. Is there anybody across the room? I'm looking around. No one else is. I want to ask you a second question this morning. You say, preacher, I know that I'm saved by God's grace. I have no question about that. But if I'm to be honest, my growth in the Lord ended on the day that I got saved. I've not really grown for it. You might say, well, preacher, I grew for years, but then hit a point of stagnation. And I've not been going on. And I, the Lord's not been waxing great in my life. And the Lord's not been having the proper place of prominence, of preeminence in my life. If that's you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. As the piano plays, I'm going to ask you to move towards the Lord. If God touched your heart about some matter. Say, preacher, I got saved, I grew in the Lord, but I've just not been walking with Him the way that I should. I've not been growing the way that I should. I've not been pressing forward the way that I should. Won't you come? Won't you meet Him in the altar? Let Him have His will and way in your heart. These are praying we have all the time we need. God touched your heart.